Welcome to the Birthing Ad Pod- Podcast. This is a podcast about pregnancy, birth and early parenting. Yay! G'day, how's it going? I'm Steve from the Prepare Foundation. We are a registered charity that helps first-time dads make an awesome contribution at the birth of their child. This is a podcast where we get blokes talking about their experience to share their wisdom with other men who are about to go through the life-altering change that comes with first-time fatherhood. So let's hear about the transition of parenthood from a dad's perspective. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Birthing Dads podcast. Today we're speaking with Simon. Simon's from the Sunshine Coast and he's a father to a five and a half year old and a three and a half year old. Is that right, Simon? Uh, two and a half, yeah, but she acts like three and a half, so. <laughs> a, a three-nager sometimes, yes. I call it, is it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it's good to be here, Steve. Thanks so much for having me back. It's always good to chat with you and I love what you're doing with Birthing Dads and opening up a space for for dads to talk and support each other because there's not a lot out there for dads out in the the social media space or the web space or even in the community space. There's a lot for mums, but not so much for dads. So congrats on this this initiative and and I'm I'm looking forward to today's episode. Thanks very much, mate. Yeah, and you've got a bit of background in men's work and, and, uh, you know, you're a social worker. And and do you want to share a little bit about what, what you're doing at the moment and what you're kind of creating? I am. So since we last spoke, I actually quit my job, the only job or the only career I've ever known for 15 years. So I was for 15 years a public servant and worked in various spaces. So immigration, multicultural, sports, elite sports, anti-doping. And then the last four years I've been in the disability space. But I last year finished my Masters of Social Work and I've always wanted to work in mental health and in particular men's mental health, given my own journey with mental illness over the last 30 years. So I've lived with obsessive compulsive disorder, depression and anxiety. And I've also experienced burnout twice as well in the last four years. But yeah, I quit my job and on the 22nd of August, we opened the, the virtual door to Mindful Men. So Mindful Men is a dedicated therapy space for men to to touch base with me primarily on telehealth we're going to be doing it via zoom or via other some other platform i'm yet to decide but if you're also on the sunshine coast in queensland oh, you can also touch base in person whether it's at someone's home or in the community so big few weeks coming up i'm just polishing off the website as we speak and then yeah in a few weeks we go live so very exciting Congratulations. Yeah, that's a big change uh, in your life, you know, kind of moving away from, I guess, a stable stable employment and, mm. and, and stepping off into the, the vast unknown. That's congratulations. Very scary. Um, yeah, as you said, it's, it's, it's gone from very like safety of the last 15 years. So obviously a permanent employee to all of a sudden trying to find my own work. Yeah, it takes courage to do that. Yeah. So I've always wanted to have my own business. So it's something that We've, we've wanted to do for a long time, but it's just, I guess, a door opened recently that we, we stepped through and it's actually made it possible. So, so here we go. Fantastic. Well, congratulations on that work. And it's very much needed in our communities. And hopefully it is a growth, a growth area. I, I do see that uh, maybe I'm in the bubble, uh, in, in a, um, a men's health bubble, but, um, I do think that we are starting to open up a little bit and my bubble is definitely filled with men that are okay with, you know, sharing their inner landscape and, yeah. and being more uh, aware of their, them, themselves. And I think it's fabulous what you're doing. So congrats, mate. 
Thank you. Just stepping into a little bit of a get-to-know-you kind of section, just to kind of run through a few quick questions. So what would you, what would you, what environment would you prefer to be in? A forest, beach, lake, a river, or a mountain? Uh, on the Sunshine Coast at the beach. At the beach, yeah. Well, it's pretty beautiful there, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's your favourite dish to eat? Uh, chicken parmigiana with a beer. Nice. And what's your favourite dish to cook? Oh, I'm a terrible cook, so I tend to leave it to my wife. But if I was to do it, I'd kind of do like this chicken and chorizo-style pasta dish. Yeah, just put it all in and see what happens, and it tastes really nice. Okay. And what's your favourite destination that you've already been to in the world? Already been to. I love Thailand. We went to Thailand a few years ago before kids, um, my wife and I. PP Island just off of um, Phuket. It's just a beautiful space, and the people are just lovely. Yeah, awesome. And so if, if you were able to go anywhere in the world and money was no issue, where would you go? I've always wanted to go to Egypt and, and jump on a camel's back and do some over the desert trekking, um, see the pyramids and, the, and and all that type of stuff. But I can't do it with my wife because she's horrifically allergic to anything with hair. Oh, okay. <laughs> so like horses and camels and all that. So I'd probably take my little brother because we have very similar interests in that area. So. Oh, it's such a great destination with all that ancient, um, you know, the history there and, and all of the sacred sites. I would love to go to Egypt yeah. as well. Yeah. Be cool. Uh, what's, um, have you got any hobbies? Hobbies? Well, podcasting, that's my latest hobby. Um, I tend to. Do you want to plug that then? What, what is your podcast? Podcast. Oh, podcasting. Yeah. So it's the Mindful Men podcast. So, yeah, where we talk to people all over the world about different things that can help men to become mindful of who they are. So it's whether it's mental health, physical health. I've had chats with a doula. Um, so in the birthing space, a doula is someone that can help people once they've had a, a bub. I've spoken to my, my five-year-old son, Gus. He came on an episode and he's keen to come on another one and talk about Pokemon. So that's in the, in the, in the mix as well. So um, I'm really enjoying just talking to people all over the world about stuff that makes men tick. Sounds good. And how, how can we find that? We'll, we'll, put a, we'll put a link in the show notes, but you want to just let us know what that is? Oh, you can just go to my website. So it's www.mindful-men.com.au and I've got both the therapy stuff that we talked about earlier, but also a link to my social media stuff as well. Excellent. And so now uh, music, film and book. So what's your favourite music? Uh, anything really. Um, Jack Johnson to get me nice and chilled. When I was studying, I used to listen to a lot of piano music just to kind of as background noise to focus. I found it really easy to focus with that kind of music. When I'm at the gym, it might be something like hip-hop or heavy metal if I'm feeling a bit angry. <laughs> Pretty much anything. So, And film? Film. I always loved, um, we talked about this last time, Mr. Holland's Opus. So it's this movie about a music or a musician who wants to compose his own music. He becomes a school teacher instead to look after his family and he's got a profoundly uh, deaf son and it's just the story of them navigating school life and him being a teacher and then at the end doing some pretty amazing things with his music. So Yeah, it's a very touching film, that one. And a book? A book? Hmm. I'm not a huge book reader, but I've recently read, oh, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Oh, nice one. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's a really easy read and really good for like stepping out of our brains and thinking about things just a little bit differently. Anti-anxiety. Yeah. 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 Yep. Great. You've got a free day. What do you do? Kidless? You, you, Kidless? No yeah. I don't know these days. Probably go to the beach if it's a nice day, something outside, go for a walk or a run. I love to go for a bit of a jog. 
but doing nothing. So it's 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 not very often as a dad you get to do nothing these days. So um, just oh, absolutely watching TV or something like that. The subtle art of not doing a thing. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Uh, describe your children in fifty words or less. One's a very fussy eater. So Gus is a very fussy eater into his Pokemon, very much like me, which is not a good thing. And my daughter, she's a little angel. She's so cool, so funky, um, and she's a wild, wild thing. So, And what makes you laugh? My kids. They just come up with the most quirkiest thing. Yeah, just and it's just so random as well. It's not even, could be something that's not even what we're doing or talking about, and they'll just come up with something that just makes me just laugh out loud. Are you planning to attend the birth of your child? Well, the safest scenario is you're calm, relaxed and know how to provide physical, emotional and practical support. The worst case scenario is you have no idea and end up looking like a deer in the headlights. Be chill, bruh. Don't be a deer in the headlights, mate. Birthing Dads has a suite of groundbreaking resources designed to give you a confidence boost ahead of the big day. And the best part, it's all on demand and 100% online. Go to birthingdads.com.au and use the coupon code POD, that's P-O-D, for a 10% discount and learn how to support birth like a superstar. Okay, let's um, cast your mind back to pre-kids. You, uh, you know, you've got a, a what? A, what do we call it? A star in your eye? Yeah, <laughs> a, spa, a sparkle in your your head, and and you kind of you you feel like you want to have children. And so, what happens? How did you approach the? Well, I guess for us, it was so. My wife and I, we both have we both worked in the public service, so we're thinking about when is the right time to do it. And and we got to a, a stage in life where we'd moved up to the Sunshine Coast got the house and got the stable job, okay, now's probably a good time to do it. Uh, everything's stable. So, yeah, we. my wife had like a bit of a uh, an app where she used to track her cycles and stuff like that. So we knew what was a good time of the month to, you know, you're having sex and all that type of stuff. And then we, yeah, we just, off you go. You just try, we tried and, and we weren't successful initially and, you know, it took a bit of time and, I think what was happening is maybe there was too short a time between ejaculation or, or things like that. So I was getting a bit worried about that, but did a bit of research on the internet and, and maybe it was time to put a bit of a gap between every time we had sex or, or whatever. So we did that kind of stuff. And then we did fall pregnant at one stage and, and it was exciting and, and amazing. But then we lost, my wife lost the pregnancy. So she had a miscarriage shortly, uh, probably around that around that 12-week mark as well. So that's that magical 12-week mark where you get the all the results are in and you can tell everybody that you're you're pregnant. And I remember the time she was away for work at the time at a, at a, at a meeting and I wasn't there and she was ringing me up, telling me what had happened. It would happen during the day when she was meant to be presenting it to, during this work meeting. So she had to kind of hold herself together for that but also deal with this really horrific traumatic experience that she was going through so, yeah, so that was our first go and, and that kind of disheartened us a little bit. We're like, you know, you kind of think you think of a miscarriage, you think, well, what's wrong with us? Is Maybe maybe I'm my, my seed's not strong enough or Rachel's body wasn't strong enough. But it's just one of those things you really can't put your, put your, your hat on it. it. Just sometimes these things happen and 
Yeah, about 25% of the, the time miscarriage will happen and that increases with age uh, of, of either yeah. dad or mum. So how did you how did you kind of, you know, get through that together? Like can you kind of go into that a little? Yeah, um, just I guess just supporting each other as best as we can. We, you know, we went and saw the doctor, the GP, and just go through that process and they reassured us that this was something that does happen and and. And and I think we might have even talked touch base with the obstetrician that we're going to go use as well, just to get their reassurance assurance as well. And then we put it on ice for a little bit, just to let the the dust settle and 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 process that that you know what had happened. And but then after a few months, we just kind of got back into it. We decided, yep, let's try again. And lo and behold, yep, it's it. We didn't have a miscarriage the next time, and Rach fell pregnant and. And off we went on our journey. So, but you're probably kind of thinking, uh, you know, another pregnancy, and and was there that that first twelve weeks was a little bit, oh yeah, apprehension and definitely like you know, if if Rach had a funny tummy or something, she wasn't feeling quite right that day. You're certainly thinking about that, but you also you also get I guess swept up in that notion of being pregnant as well, and, and the good feeling about that, and and. And knowing that something magical is happening, and so you, that kind of goes for us. It went, and we didn't think about it too much after that. But yeah, it was something that played on your mind a little bit, as as particularly those first twelve weeks, which are quite crucial, I guess, in in getting set for the pregnancy. So and so you move along, moving along, and you go to your twenty week scan, and yeah, you tell your whole family that that everything's happening, and yeah. So we we told everyone at twelve weeks. We're not very good at keeping secrets. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I made an effort to go to each scan. I really wanted to be a part of each scan and each doctor's appointment, each obstetrician appointment. And I was lucky enough I could take that time off of work. So we just did the appointments at the end of the day or or the start of the day and and worked around that. But a lot of my job during the pregnancy was, and I didn't actually tell you about this last time we had a chat, was is was she was sick from day one to the last day. Like absolutely, like morning sickness was it was an all-day sickness and, you know, constant nausea, throwing up, probably the diarrhoea as well, and, and and it was a horrific, like it actually runs through her family, like the the mums, in like her mum and, and her sister's just fallen pregnant as well and, and she's going through the very similar similar process as we speak as well. So that was that part, but she also developed a skin condition as well. So... I think we were down in Brisbane one night for for tea, and and she got bitten, bitten by midges or what we think were midges, and from there it looked like she had a flesh eating virus. It was that bad because she could she was scratching and scratching and scratching so much that and when you get pregnant you have to be really careful of the kind of medications that she took. So like antihistamines, she didn't really know. I think polaramine is something that you can take in some pregnancies. So don't quote me on that. I'm not a doctor. Anybody. But she didn't know there was one option for her, but there was a lot of options that she couldn't take. So she tried uh, creams and baths and we ended up going to a dermatologist and did laser therapy on it and, and on her legs. And it literally looked like she was a zombie, like her legs were just like it was just horrific. So we were dealing with that plus bringing a baby into the world and and all sorts. And I remember at the time as well, just before the birth as well, it was Joe Hockey was overseas. I think Joe Hockey had left politics and there was this whole issue around double dipping in terms of maternity leave. So you have the government maternity leave, but then you also have some employers provide some as well. 
And then there was talk around, I think it was Tony Abbott at the time. Don't quite, it could be Tony Abbott or, or Turnbull. I can't remember who the prime minister was. We've had that many over the years, but yeah. they were looking to reduce maternity leave. So this is like a few weeks out before we we're about to give birth. And, and Rachel had planned a whole 12 months of leave with the prospect of that being cut in half and having to go to back, back to work earlier. So we we're, were stressed about that. And luckily, just before the birth, the government decided to leave that alone because it would, wouldn't be a great fit for them in their um, cohorts as well. So we we're thinking about all those types of stuff as well and, and going to different education sessions. So we had a, education sessions at the hospital that we were going to give birth at. So it's like we go there. I think we went there for a, a day or so and they, they went through different videos and about what birth birthing is and what what to expect. Braxton Hicks, what's that, you know, in terms of just before the birth, like like kind of like fake contractions, if that's a, if you can describe yeah. it like that. It's like you yeah. think you're, you're about to give birth, but you're not. It's just everything getting ready. So that type of stuff. And then, and yeah, so we did all of that. And, and, and then before you know it, it was time to give birth. Congrats. Well, and so how were you feeling in the lead up? You, you kind of, were you, you know, excited or? I was excited. Rachel was over pregnancy, completely over with the the leg condition that she had and the sickness that she just wanted. Gus, his name's Gus, Gus out, and she didn't want to go over as well. So we made the decision that pretty much when she was due, we'd be going into the hospital. And the obstetrician was on board with this because we were we were going through a private hospital, so we're lucky with that as well in terms of having the one obstetrician throughout the whole nine months leading into it and then the birth and then the aftercare as well. So, but yeah, but how are you feeling at this time? Are you, are you, you want to get inside your head around the, yep. the impending birth? Oh, I just excited. I was excited to meet the little fella and, and we didn't know it was a boy. We decided to keep it quiet and I like surprises. So, so yeah, we didn't know if it was a boy or a girl. And so we're just talking about that a lot. It was really excited to go. Is it a boy? We think it's going to be a girl. And, and I was just super excited. All right. So let's move into the birth. How did that unfold? Um, so, yeah, so Rach didn't want to go over. So pretty much on the due date or just after the due date, a couple of days later, we packed our bags. So private private hospital, we knew we, we'd pack our little suitcases and off we went. And we we're lucky to have five days stay there. And what they do is you have birth on the first day. And then you spend four to five days recovering, but also getting a lot of nurses come in and help you to learn to swaddle and, and all that type of stuff. We packed our bags, rocked up at the hospital, and they decided to induce Rach because they wanted to make sure it was going to come. And then so, yeah, we they induced her. I can't remember the exact process. I think it must have been just an injection or something from memory. It's been five and a half years <laughs> since that's happened, but yeah, and then we and then we just play the waiting game, and and those Braxton Hicks that were coming in, they were getting more intense and more frequent, and eventually make the move into the birthing suite, which is a big room that had had like a little spa bath in case you wanted to do like a, a pool a water birth, or it's got a big bed in the middle and, and a bathroom and, and lots of room to move around in. So we moved into there. And I remember setting up the first half an hour. I had this music playlist on my on my phone or something like that, and it was had all this calming music that was going to help Rach through the process. But I just couldn't work out the sound because it kept cutting off every 10, 20 seconds. So I'd I'd constantly be going back to the, the to the to the radio and trying to fix up the thing. And eventually, Rach was like, "Just forget the music. Come and <laughs> stay <support> here." Me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so then I, my job with, from there was helping her, just holding her hand, keeping her calm, 
and this went on for hours like the 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 contractions got more and more intense and and Rachel was trying to push through that that pain but she was going through quite a lot of pain like so Rachel's quite a small person uh small in stature and and the pain that she, she was just screaming out in pain every contraction and and it it was quite it was quite traumatic that kind of just listening to your your partner go through that and you can't do anything you're just you're all you can do is hold her hand or you know try and you know stroke her back or or whatever try to try to help in any way you can but there's little you can do yeah there's lots lots of things you can do but i mean you can't take it entirely away so there are ways of you know of of trying to you know assist with her discomfort and ease it a little bit but yeah like you say you can't take that pain for her and, and yeah, I, I hear that a lot from guys that, you know, feeling that, you know, just witnessing that is one of the hardest things that you'll ever experience. And I think that's because it's, it's, uh, it's kind of, it's triggering your primal protection instincts, isn't it? Yeah. You know, and yeah. you, you're used to being able to protect your partner and that's what you want to do. And you want to always be there to, to help with things. And, and then you have to sit back and kind of just watch this unfold. But it's worth actually recognising and just for our listeners that, you know, childbirth is is a natural process and it kind of, you know, in the birthing world, a lot of the time what they say is birth knows what it's doing mm. and it's happened billions of times and, you know, you've got to be able to get to a place of being able to trust that what's unfolding is a natural and safe process. Uh, and, Admittedly, it's not always safe, but you will know if it's, you'll know by looking around the room or when the midwife comes in or if there's a doctor nearby, whether or not it's getting to an unsafe place. So, yeah. yeah. So uh, until that happens, just try and trust the process. Yeah. And that's what I was, you know, trusting. We had the obstetrician coming in all, you know, every now and then checking on things. And he was, he's the most calmest guy in the world. I always wondered why we picked this guy, a, a guy to be the obstetrician. And I would have thought Rachel would have picked a, a female obstetrician, but she was, I guess he was recommended through family, like extended family that they've used. And he was just the most calmest and gentlest guy in the world. And, and yeah, really calming effect as well. But also we had the nurses in there and they were just amazing. They didn't leave the room. They were in there the whole time and giving us all that reassurance to know that this is what was meant to be happening. And we just had to let, just work with it and just try our best through it. So the obstetrician actually got to a stage where he was going to um, manually. Yeah, manually break the. the, the break the waters. That's yes, the word I was looking yes. for. So before that was going to happen, she's like, I just need to go to the toilet. So she went to the toilet. And as she was walking back from the toilet, she must have been freaking out because her waters broke at that moment. Right. <laughs> and all over the floor. But they looked at the waters and they were a little bit dirty as well, like a little bit browning colour. And they're like, okay, something, you know, obviously Gus, he's he's getting stuck. But we'll keep pushing, see if it can come out naturally because I still want it to come out naturally as much as possible. So Rach tried to push for a little bit longer now that the waters had broken. Um, but the pain became so much that she needed a, is it the epidural? So, so the the injection into her spine to numb everything because she just couldn't keep going. She was She was spent both from exhaustion but also pain as well. So so we went through that process, but then eventually the obstetrician said, Gus isn't coming, he's stuck, you're not dilating enough, we have to go up to emergency and deliver him via C-section. And, we, and Rachel didn't want the C-section initially, she wanted the natural birth, but it was our only option in the end. So, so we got scrubbed up and, you know, within 10, 15 minutes we're up in emergency in the theatre 
she's completely numb, so she's not feeling a thing and and um and so forth. But yeah, five minutes later, the, they pulled down the, the the sheet and they're holding up Gussie, and and yeah, he, he's born. He was he was born on Valentine's Day, so he's a Valentine's Day baby. Then all of a sudden, we're parents of a <laughs> of a screaming child. So. <laughs> So they did all that, but then they they took him over to just check out everything, check make sure he's got you know two arms, two legs, he's got a head, all that type of stuff. And they encouraged me to come over and and place my hand on him. So I did that and then just said hello to the little guy. And he the first thing he did was piss all over me. I <laughs> in that moment, and that's probably happened a few times since, has it? <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> Even though he's five and a half, it still happens every now and then. But yeah, and then and then they it's really important they get skin time with mum. So from there, Gus was put on to, to Rachel's breasts and, and just having that skin on skin time. And yeah, we um were saying hello to Gus for the first time. Wonderful. And how did you feel at that at that moment? Did you have the bolt of love or was it, you know, a little take a little bit longer? No, straight away, like as soon as we saw him, even before that, like in the pregnancy, I felt that bolt of love and and I always think about it as like the kind of like the purest form of love, having a having a child is because before you're you're their entire world, but at the same time they have no history or baggage that they're coming into this relationship. They're brand new and, and everything from that moment's brand new and and you just feel this overwhelming sense of wanting to protect them and love them and and bring up them as the most amazing person, you know, amazing person in the world. So, um, and did you do anything like taking back to the pregnancy a bit? Did you do anything to connect with Gus while he was in the womb? Like, you speak to him much or? Oh, not really. Not not overly. Like we, I mean, we would. I'd rub the belly, and every now and then, when it, particularly as he got bigger. And you start to see like the hand or the elbow or the leg push against the skin and like see the little bulge. You might have a bit of a tickle and a, a chat with him there, but nothing over. Like I, like I know some people read read to the the bub or in the, you know to the belly or, or things like that. I didn't do anything like that. It wasn't really our scene. So yeah, yeah, but I, it's great that you felt that connection with him during pregnancy as well. And I mean, I encourage dads to kind of connect with the belly mm. uh, by humming or singing or talking, you know, and then they'll recognize your voice when they come out. But obviously, you didn't really need to no. kind of nurture that. You already kind of naturally had that connection, you know, in your mind, that emotional yeah. connection. Anything else to share about the birth? I guess from there, like it was just going back, you know, going back down from theatre into into our room. So we're in a private hospital. We had a private room and with a private bathroom as well. And and then yeah, just trying to to come to terms with taking lots of lots of photos and and then coming to terms with <laughs> being responsible for another human being. <laughs> it's like a ton of bricks, doesn't it? <laughs> it, it? It does. And you're like, oh wow, and it doesn't hit you until well, it hits you like initially, but then when you go home as well. And so five days later, when we went home, and the quietness of being home, or even a car ride home, it, that's when it really sets in because all of a sudden you don't have nurses on call or, or doctors coming in. Yeah, it's amazing. I remember just kind of thinking, well. Wow, uh, they've let they've let, actually let us leave this the hospital with this baby. <laughs> they've let us leave, and and we don't know anything about what we're meant to be doing. Yeah, it's a big learning process. That's right. And it's it's funny you say that because we stayed for five days, and and Rachel because of the of the pain, so they stitched her back up, and so she couldn't actually get out of bed for four days. 
So it was pretty much I was doing all the nappy changes, the bathing, walking up and down the the hallways in the middle of the night trying to get Gussie to sleep. And But Rach was in so much pain that she had to stay in bed and it got to the stage where the, the nurses said, you actually have to get out of bed because you're going home tomorrow. And so she on the fourth day, she had to get out of bed and dragged herself out of bed and, and had shower and and all that type of stuff. But also when we go home, because she's had the the cesarean, she's not allowed to lift much as well. So for the next, you know, six weeks or so, I'm doing all the driving, I'm doing all any any lifting. She can only re- really pick up the baby size, so Gus's size. That's about as much as she's allowed to pick up. So it's all systems go from a dad's perspective, or particularly in our in our situation where she couldn't get out of bed and, and then the next six weeks after. And how long did you have off when? I, I say I was lucky. Like men don't get a lot of maternity or paternity leave or parental leave, but I think I managed to have about four to six weeks off with a combination of what work allowed from a parental leave perspective, but also some annual leave as well. But I know other dads don't get that. You know, that some of them might get nothing. Some of them get might get a week or a couple of days even, but I was really lucky. I guess given that public service career that we talked about earlier, having an annual leave up my sleeve to be able to do that. So, But I also worked at home a little bit as well, so I could see them during the day as well, which made it a little bit better as well. So, Yeah, with, with Rachel um, recovering from surgery for sure. Mm. And so how was it getting to know little Gussie and, and you know, what? how would you have any advice for dads on getting to know their newborn? Well, it was tough from a dad's perspective, I guess, in terms of, Gus was one of those babies who would only breastfeed to sleep and he wouldn't do it with a bottle. So Rachel, the only way to get him to sleep was for Rachel to put him to sleep. So I was, I felt like, I, you know, we had all the bottles and everything and I was ready to go, but I couldn't connect with him during feeding time because he wouldn't have a bar of it. So a lot of that was left to Rachel. And also like we couldn't really go anywhere because he wouldn't go in the car. He hated the car. So you put him in the car, five minutes later, he'd be screaming the car down. So we couldn't drive anywhere. So we were really stuck within our little location, uh, walking around a block. He hated the pram as well. <laughs> He's <laughs> high maintenance, this guy. High maintenance. This kid is in the in the front pack. That was the only way we could get him to sleep during the day. And then at nighttime, it was breastfeeding to sleep. So so from a dad's perspective, once I got the front pack on and I could get him to sleep that time, that was cool. And every now and then he would fall asleep with me on like on my on my chest. And and but he was one of those babies that once he fell asleep or like getting him to sleep was really hard. Once he was asleep, you dare not make a sound in in the whole neighborhood because he would wake up. So yeah, so you'd say so we would lie there sometimes for two to three hours on the couch in the middle of the day, and it was the best. The best two to three hours because I wasn't allowed to move. Um, had the TV on low so that he wouldn't he wouldn't wake up. But it was just the nicest cuddles because he would just sit there and he'd be so content. So that was cool. But yeah, the feeding thing I thought I thought about a lot. You know, that impacted me because I wanted to be the hands on dad with him, but he just wouldn't. He he wasn't that kind of baby. Whereas Pippa, our second child, yeah, she would take the bottle. And in fact, that she I don't think she could really take. Rachel's milk for that long either because she's she's got a lot of allergies and and stuff like that that was coming through and 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 through the breast milk so we had to change her to a formula so but she was happy to for me to feed her which was a little bit different to Gussie so yeah and those connecting moments are kind of cute you know looking down at them mm. you you were meaning a, a expressed milk in the beginning is that right you yeah 
Yeah, like so even though it was expressed into a bottle, he wouldn't take it. It had to come direct from the source, yeah. straight from the boob. <laughs> and so in those, in those crucial early times, were there uh, are you guys on your own or have you got your parents around or other family members? No, so we've so Rachel's from Tassie and I'm from Adelaide. So that's where our parents are both in those different states. But she, we did have like Rachel's aunties are up here on the sunny coast. I think we're naturally those kind of people that we just tend not to ask for help, but we probably should have in different areas and, and got more help because parenting can be quite lonely and can be quite stressful, be hard, but we got through it. But yeah, we didn't have any any grandparents to help or anything like that. And so in the, those first 12 months, you know, the, the kind of the perinatal period, it is it is a tough, you know, it's highly recognised as a tough time. Mm. How did you kind of, you know, get through that that time? Were you, you know, come off unscathed or? It was a, certainly a steep learning curve. It was hard, like going through the sleep, like the lack of sleep and and for me not being able to feed him to sleep and, and, and yeah, but we got through it. Like it, I think it was just... You know, you have to as a parent. You 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 push through, and and yeah, and fortunately, we neither of us experienced the like postnatal depression or anything like that. We were fully smitten with Gus, and 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 connecting with Gus. It was just more around the sleep deprivation and trying to figure out how to be a parent and be a good parent and not feel guilty about getting things wrong. So, and how about your connection with Rach? Rachel was that um, you know how was that to kind of manage after having a baby? It's funny, like your relationship certainly changes once you have a baby because everything becomes about the baby as opposed to your connection with your partner. So we both recognise that for the last five, even five years that we've been on autopilot since then, like, you know, bring up Gus and then a couple of years later we had Pippa as well. So we went through the exact same process with Pippa and we just went on that autopilot and Rach often says or we or both of us say that every now and then it feels like we're just two boats passing in the middle of the night on the water. And, you know, we're, we're around, but we're not really connecting and so forth. So we're making more of a conscious effort these days to to connect and, and go have date nights. I think date nights are very important. We never did that. We should have. This, this is where we should have got that help from the aunties or a babysitter or something like that. Reconnected earlier in terms of, of our romance because it's something that did get pushed aside because we're you go on that autopilot and bringing up kids mode and everything becomes a bit Groundhog Day sometimes. Yeah, yeah, that's what I found as well. What are the best bits of fatherhood that you can think of? I uh, love coming home from work or when before I was un- or self-employed. I say self-employed, not unemployed. but <laughs> <laughs> And hearing that word, you know, then yell out, Daddy, when you're walking that door. It's like one of my favourite things to hear. But also just like their interest in you, in what you're doing and, and being around you. So, you know, as I said, Gussie, Gussie's been on the podcast. He loves that now. And we're now getting into Pokemon and, and I'm actually rediscovering some of my inner childhood with Gus as well. So the Pokemon thing, that was a big thing when I was in school. So we've been getting back into Pokemon, playing it on, on the computer and stuff like that. So that's really cool. But in those baby stages as well, it's just you, the proud dad, you're walking around with the pram, man with a pram and, and um, showing showing him off, and yeah, it's just it's just the best thing. Like everything about fatherhood is is really cool. Well, not everything, because <laughs> that's my next question, right? So, <laughs> what are the challenges that you face that you kind of go, ah, oh, not that again? Well, uh, I guess fe- feeding is one. So, feeding for Gus particularly. So, he had a bit of a reflux thing when he was a bub. So he de- and that developed into he would only eat chicken nuggets. <laughs> 
So he became one of those chicken nugget kids for the first five years of his life. Chicken nuggets, he wouldn't eat even plain chips. Like he wouldn't even eat hot chips. I mean, what kid doesn't like hot chips? Gus doesn't. Mm. Um, So he's pretty much chicken nuggets, Vegemite toast, Vegemite sandwiches is pretty much his diet. So we're starting to get him to eat. He ate a carrot last night, which is amazing. Woohoo, happy days. (laughs) Happy days. So feeding has been a huge challenge for us, for, for Gus. Like they say that they'll just eat anything or you often hear like they like put the food in front of them. If they don't eat it, they go to bed hungry. You know, we're not that kind of parent, you know. No, I, I, no, I don't think so. You know, and we want him to eat. And then as we did, we, get, we got worried because he wasn't eating this these veggies or lots of fruit or anything like that. So we ended, ended up going to get a nutritionist involved or a dietitian involved in blood tests. But what we found out was that he was getting everything he needed from the very few things that he did eat. So we didn't have to worry. We didn't have to stress. I think that was us trying to be these perfect parents of, of him growing up healthy and, and all this type of stuff. But in reality, we were doing good enough. Good enough parenting is something that we never think of or often don't think of. But in but in reality, that's that's enough that makes it work. So Oh look, I think that, you know, just saying that good enough parenting is is brilliant. It's absolutely what we need to have mm. in the back of our mind to keep the guilt away. Yeah. You know, you just got to kind of remind yourself that as long as you are doing the best that you can, even if you're not necessarily meeting the child every need, mm. you know, as long as you're kind of doing doing the best that you possibly can, then that child is being nurtured and loved, and and yeah. and that that's if that's the best you know the best you can do, then that is good enough. And I like you know that you raise that, and it's particularly hard in that first one to two years because they're not really talking either, like they're not able to verbalise what's actually wrong with them. So they might be crying, but it could be, is it gas? Is it, are they hungry? Are they thirsty? Do they need to go to sleep? Are they actually sick? Do they have COVID in the last few years? You know, all these types of things like that, and you worry about them. So it's really hard in those first two year, couple of years until they start being able to tell you, oh, daddy, I feel like I've got a sore tummy or I'm full daddy or I, I want to go to bed, daddy, which is very rare you hear that. <laughs> <laughs> so what are your tips on dealing with that or or kind of getting through that? What do you tell someone to do that? I think it's just always remind yourself that you're not going to get it right all the time and that's okay. We're not meant to be perfect parents. Just and just just go with them. Our kids can bounce. They're like they're they're quite resilient. Always just come back to that good enough parenting, you know, be easy on yourself. They will get through. You'll learn a lot from them and they'll learn a lot from you and and just just do your best. And be okay to open up. So if you're struggling, go talk to someone, a GP. The GP is a great place to start. You know, listen to a great podcast like this. You know, fill your head with stuff that makes you feel good as well. But that's also informative because, as I said, there's not much around for dads, but there is good stuff around for dads. you just got to find it. So, and don't be afraid to open up. There's no point bottling it up because you just turn into a volcano and that's not what anyone wants. So... That's a good analogy, the volcano erupting occasionally, mm-hmm. <laughs> violently, yeah. Uh, look, that actually seems like a good place to uh, stop for today. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom as a as a new dad. Well, a you're quite a seasoned dad now, <laughs> Simon. Thanks for coming on. And uh, if you want to contact Simon, uh, it's www.mindful-men.com.au. Yep. That's it. Good luck with that, mate. Thanks, Steve. Thanks so much for having me again on the podcast. 
I look forward to actually when you come and you, you do a, a toddler version or a teenage version. I'll be, you know, I'll put my hand up to come back on. But it's, it's as I said before, it's a great thing you're doing to get more content out there for dads, get them talking about things, or even just thinking about, you know, parenting. And, and um, no, nah, well done. I, I really love the podcast. Thanks very much, mate. All the best. I'd like to acknowledge the Darawal people as the traditional custodians of the land upon which this podcast is recorded. And I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging.